Welcome everyone, clients and friends of the Freshfield Bruckhaus Derringer International Arbitration Group. This is the group's podcast series. My name is Boris Feldman. I'm a lawyer at Freshfield Silicon Valley office. Our topic today is the attack on technology companies from governments around the world. Is there anything that the tech companies can do to protect themselves? And we're going to offer you today a three-letter answer, B-I-T. Our three colleagues are expert in litigating these issues around the world. From London, we have our colleague Annie Pan. And from New York, we have Elliot Friedman and Tom Walsh. In case you're wondering, Elliot's accent is not from Queens. It's actually from Down Under. Uh, What you're wondering is BIT. BIT stands for Bilateral Investment Treaties. And they might be part of the answer that technology companies are looking for in the current global regulatory risk environment. As you'll learn today, the treaties are quite powerful. They can protect a company against mistreatment by a foreign government, including discrimination and, more important, unfair regulatory interference. To reiterate, because that is the takeaway today, bilateral investment treaties might protect your company from unfair regulatory interference by a foreign government. If the treaties are breached by the foreign government, the company has a right to bring that government to an international arbitration, usually before the World Bank. And the company can obtain compensation for the treaty violation, potentially running into billions of dollars. For many years, our clients in the energy and telecom sectors have taken advantage of BIT arbitrations. And the firm thought it's time that tech companies take a look at the potential. So topic one today, what are investment treaties and how do they work? Let me turn it to Elliot Friedman. Elliot, please provide us with investment treaties for dummies, or if we want to be more polite, investment treaties 101. So investment treaties for dummies, investment treaties 101, what are they? These are legal instruments that give companies the ability to sue foreign governments for mistreatment. And perhaps most importantly, as you noted, they allow the company to do so in an independent forum. So outside of the court system of the country that has mistreated you. So these are agreements between countries. So they are agreed to at the international level, country to country. But what they do is they protect individual investors. So you have sovereigns agreeing to give rights to individual private investors. An example, Boris, there is an investment treaty between the United States and Turkey. This protects US investors into Turkey. If you are a US investor in Turkey and you're mistreated by an arm of the Turkish government, by a regulatory agency, by the Turkish courts, you have the ability to bring Turkey to international arbitration in in an independent forum. It means that you don't have to take your mistreatment by foreign governments to the courts of that very government. As you said, 
These have been used very effectively for many years by the oil companies, by the infrastructure companies, by telco companies. Countries don't like facing these claims, so even the threat of an investment treaty claim can be very effective in negotiations. So they should be considered, as you said, Boris, very, very carefully by tech companies. Let's say you're meeting with one of our clients in Silicon Valley, and they're intrigued by this. What do they have to do to trigger the process? So one of the really innovative things of these treaties is they provide a standing consent of the foreign government to an arbitration with an investor that invests in that country. So it's not like you need a separate agreement with the foreign government in order to bring them to investment treaty arbitration. The treaty is itself that agreement. You accept that agreement by investing in the foreign country and then triggering your rights under that investment treaty by bringing an arbitration claim. So how do you access it? The example I gave just a minute ago, the US-Turkey BIT. You're an American company, you're investing in Turkey, you're automatically covered by that treaty. But what if you're an American company investing, say, in Venezuela? There is no US-Venezuela bilateral investment treaty. What you do in that situation is you structure your investment through a country that has a treaty with the host country of your investment. That's called treaty structuring. And it's pretty easy to do because there are over 3,000 of these treaties and they exist in many jurisdictions that are also favorable from a taxation perspective. So you can structure your investment through the Netherlands, through Belgium, through Luxembourg, for example. You'll get beneficial tax treatment. You will also bring yourself under the umbrella of the Netherlands, the Benelux investment treaty with the country that you're investing in. So it's pretty easy to gain access to these treaties. It's an extra layer of protection should you need it. That's pretty straightforward to obtain. So I think there, I heard two takeaways in what you just said, and I wanna make sure that as the dummy that you're doing, BIT for dummies for, that I didn't get it wrong. Number one, a general counsel evaluating her rights in this context need not have entered into an agreement between her company and the country. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. And second, if I understand you, as our clients who are engaging in investments in a particular country, think about the deal terms. One item that they might add to their checklist is do we want to run this deal through a country that has a bilateral treaty with the ultimate country in which we're investing? Precisely. Okay. I want to, I want to put Tom Walsh on the spot. Welcome, Tom, from New York. What types of rights and protections do these treaties actually offer investors? Another way of looking at this is for a busy general counsel, is this worth her time to learn about? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, why do these treaties actually matter? Uh, because they do actually provide broad rights to investors. Every treaty is a little different, though on average we would expect a, a treaty to have about a half dozen different protections that a foreign investor could rely on. Uh, some of them are self-explanatory, uh, others take a little bit more to understand. 
but all could be of value uh, to tech companies. And they include things like protections against uh, expropriation without compensation. Typically, that would mean you know, if the military shows up at your front door, uh, they have to pay you the market value of your investment, including lost profits and interest. It also can mean that if a government passes a regulation that effectively expropriates your business or wipes out its economic viability, they have to pay you for that. Uh, and so that is a, a potentially a very useful protection. Uh, there are a few others that probably are, are worth mentioning. Uh, there are protections usually around transferring your profits back to your home jurisdiction. So the government can't prevent you from doing that. And then there are protections against discriminatory treatment. And this is one that I think could potentially be of significant value to tech companies. So what does it mean? Uh, it means that if you are a foreign investor, uh, the government can't treat you differently from other foreign investors or from domestic investors. And so you have to get a fair shake. Now, everyone might be mistreated, but uh, you can't be treated any differently. And then last, I, I would highlight something called fair and equitable treatment. Uh, this sounds a little amorphous and it, it can be, but it is a very broad right and it's invoked more than pretty much any other right under investment treaties. And, and what it provides is that a foreign investor can't be treated in an arbitrary manner. Uh, the laws should be applied to it, regulations should be applied to it as intended, and they should be given due process. Uh, and if you don't receive those things, you have a claim. Now, if you go through the process and it, it, you get the fair shake that the law requires and you're denied, that's one thing. But if you're arbitrarily denied, you have a claim. Uh, and fair and equitable treatment as a result is a, a very powerful tool that many of our clients end up using. So based on what you just said, we probably have a number of clients listening in saying, wait, all those things have happened to me, but what type of investment that I've made is protected? Is this only a series A investment in a startup in another country, or is it more broad than a classic literal investment? The definition of protected investments will vary from treaty to treaty. But usually it's quite broad. I mean, it'll, it'll say something like any asset owned directly or indirectly by the foreign investor that's in the, the territory of the of the host state. Uh, and then it will give a, a list of examples. But these examples aren't intended to be uh, exclusive. They're just intended to be illustrative of what is a protected investment. And they'll include things like uh, you know, physical property. So if you happen to have an, an office in, in the home country or shares stock in, in local companies, uh, IP, so patent rights, copyright, trademark in, the, in that country, uh, and even concessions or contracts. You know, think of you know, a cloud computing contract with the host state or any sort of digital services contract with the host state. The definition of a protected investment is intended to be quite broad. And usually it's interpreted to be largely anything of economic value that the investor has invested in the, in the territory of the host state. So, Tom, you've covered the types of protections and the types of investments. If somebody on the call wanted to look at kind of a model BIT to just actually read through it, is there one in particular that you would point them to? Uh, absolutely. There are a few countries that actually publish model BITs, but the, the U.S. State Department publishes one, and it's usually copied by other states. Uh, and so that would be one to review. 
Of course, you could also feel free to call any one of us and we'd walk you through it. The beauty, Boris, of, of these instruments is that they're usually pretty short. They're usually under 15 pages, and so they're digestible. And there's four or five clauses that matter to foreign investors in these countries that are a few sentences each. So we're not talking about wading through volumes and masses of information. We're talking about digestible instruments that really can be used. So what we will do for our friends who are listening is on the Freshfield website, where we have a link to the podcast, we'll have some additional reading materials for you. Annie, I want to turn to a topic that I'm guessing our listeners are wondering about. Do investment treaties apply to digital assets? So let's focus with that narrow topic within the universe of investments that Tom just laid out, whether it's a factory or a share investment. Do digital assets fall within the definition in and if they do, what particular considerations do they present for our clients? Sure. So let's start with your first question, Boris, which is, uh, do digital assets fall within the definition of investment? The jurisprudence says that everything of economic value qualifies as an investment under these treaties. Digital assets like, say, data have economic value, and so there's a good chance that they will fall within the definition of investment under most BITs. But then coming to your second question, which is what peculiar considerations digital assets present, one key consideration you'll want to think about is whether digital assets satisfy the requirement in BITs that the investment be in the territory of the host state in order to qualify for protection from mistreatment from that host state. And that's because some might argue that digital assets like data, they float in the cloud, as it were. So they're neither here nor there, not quite attached to any one particular jurisdiction. And so you could see how one might argue that they don't meet the territoriality requirement in BITs. But of course, most tech companies aren't just data alone, right? They'll have businesses, they'll have operations, and they'll have other assets. And all of that in the round would then be considered in uh, determining whether the investment is in the territory of the host state. So if the investment has a physical presence in the host state, like local offices or data stored on local servers, it should be pretty easy to show that territorial link. But you might also be able to show that link in other ways, even if you don't have a physical presence. And I'm thinking, say, locally incorporated subsidiaries or locally registered and exploited IP uh, or local user contracts. All of those might provide the necessary touch points to demonstrate that territorial link. So ironically, now that companies around the world are trying to tax U.S. tech companies based on users in a particular country, or revenue from a particular country, those efforts, which are not generally pleasing to our U.S. tech clients, may actually strengthen their argument about the applicability of a bilateral investment treaty. I want to go to the hypothetical, Annie, and I'll give for you the standard caveat. We're not providing legal blah, blah, but what everybody's wondering is the following scenario. Assume that a foreign country is imposing regulatory restrictions on a search engine, 
uh, video streaming website, any of the things that our U.S. clients have excelled at around the world. Assume that the company does not maintain a local subsidiary, local intellectual property, local user contracts, but they're getting pummeled by that foreign government. Could a platform like that qualify as a protected investment? So the short answer is that we aren't aware of any cases that have considered this question yet. But the key consideration for this kind of business would seem again to be whether it satisfies the territoriality requirement of the BIT. So these sorts of data processing, internet industries, businesses that you mentioned, they often carry out their activities and transactions, data exchanges and the like without a physical presence inside the host state. And so their locations really fall outside our traditional understandings of territory. But even then, you can see how one might argue that the investment or the business occurs at least in part in the territory of the host state. So web-based platforms, they typically provide users with content in exchange for their data. And then they sell advertising or placement in search results to companies that want to reach those users. So what that means is that users receive content and advertising on devices located in the host state. And that content and advertising is often targeted to that host state market. It might even originate in the host state market and simply be displayed on the foreign-owned website. So for example, if I'm from Buenos Aires and I visit a website owned by a US company, I'm probably going to be receiving advertising from companies that paid that website to advertise to the Argentine market. And of course, to reach users in the host state, web-based businesses rely on local telecoms companies, local telecoms infrastructure to deliver their services. So those are all factors that suggest that even a web-based platform might be able to demonstrate the necessary links to a particular state to meet the territoriality requirement. And I should say that there are also some that have suggested that the territorial link test just has to be applied differently when you're looking at intangible assets. And we've seen this in the context of sovereign bonds. So in Abiclat, which was a big bondholder claim against Argentina, the tribunal said that the determination of the place of the investment depends on the nature of that investment. And looking at sovereign bonds in that case and whether they satisfied the territoriality test, the tribunal said that the relevant criteria should be where and for the benefit of whom the funds were used. And since the funds raised by Argentine sovereign bonds in that case were to be used for the benefit of Argentina, the territoriality requirement was met. And so you can see how under this kind of test, the use of software, access to information via search engine by someone in a particular state, all of that could be said to benefit that state and provide the necessary link to satisfy the territoriality requirement. Okay, Annie, I'm going to put you on the spot. And this is not meant to be an infomercial for Freshfield. We don't need a little sticker on it that says, as seen on TV. But if you're a general counsel and you're listening in and you say, you know, this one jurisdiction has really gotten under my skin and they're being very unfair to us, how big a deal is it to do an analysis 
of whether we might have a claim here. In other words, the work that you'd need to do, if you haven't done work for us before, the work that you'd need to do to evaluate our operations there. Well, we can tell you very quickly on the day, if you can give us a corporate structure chart, whether you might have protection via a BIT uh, in relation to one of the corporate vehicles that uh, sit in your structure chart. And so that's something that we can do straight away. We can then also have a look at the investment you have in a particular country and we can think about whether it satisfies the territoriality tests that I've just been talking about. That might take a bit longer, but certainly we can tell you whether you, Prima Fasci, would benefit from the protection of one or more BITs on the same day. Okay. And, and I take it if anybody wants to do that, they can reach out to any of the three of you. Of course, we'd be happy to speak to anyone. Okay. I want to turn to topic three. I'm a litigator by training, so I'm very dispute-oriented. Elliot, as a, as a hardcore litigator, let's turn to different potential topics for investor state tension on the horizon, investor versus state tension. Uh, how about taxation? Every tech client of ours around the world is very focused on the change in the global tax structure. So... Are there any treaty claims viable on tax, or is it beyond treaty? Tax claims fall squarely within most treaties. A couple of treaties have a carve-out for true taxation measures, um, but most treaties don't. And most treaties will give you the ability to bring a claim if you've been mistreated through tax policy. And you're exactly right. We are seeing tax policy being used very aggressively by foreign governments, um, sometimes legitimately, many times illegitimately, to restrict the growth of US and other tech companies. It is an instrument in what we're seeing as the, the Cold War attacks on, on tech companies. So the first round of tax claims that were brought under these investment treaties were through the confiscatory imposition of taxes. So governments said, well, I don't need to send in the army and kick you out of your oil assets anymore. I can just tax your profits at 99%. That's an actual case. And so that tax measure was found to be a violation of the treaty. Pretty blunt instrument. But what we can also see is the discriminatory application of taxes. We can see the protectionist application of taxes, even the retroactive application of taxes, the transaction that you thought and understood and were led to believe was not going to be taxable, suddenly five years later was taxable, or the offshore purchase of a company that shouldn't be taxable, well, here comes a retroactive billion dollar tax bill for it. All of these measures can and have and will give rise to claims under investment treaties. So let's say a country really doesn't like the U.S. tech industry and they want to encourage their own startups. So they pass a very, very punitive tax, but they don't define the universe as U.S. tech companies. They say technology companies with annual revenue above X dollars so that that doesn't affect any company in their home country, but it affects every significant U.S. tech company. Are there BIT implications of that or not really? 
There are, there are. This this would trigger the discrimination, the the protections against discrimination and others. And yes, we've seen in the past exactly those types of measures attempted. And what tribunals have done and should do is to look at the substance of those measures rather than the form and see in substance that these are discriminatory taxation measures, even though they are cast in what may be seen to be a non-discriminatory way. So the short answer is yes, Boris, very great, great possibility for claims for those kinds of things. In the actual nitty gritty of the arbitrations, is the legislative or regulatory history of the tax a factor? In other words, if in a particular country, the head of the parliament has said, we don't like these five U.S. tech companies, and we've come up with a clever way to tax them so that our startups have a fair chance on the global stage. Is that type of history admissible and relevant in your arbitrations? Yes and yes. So definitely relevant because what we are asking is what is the intention and effect of these measures? So all that type of evidence is very, very relevant. Admissibility is an interesting question. We're in the world of international arbitration, not the world of domestic courts. The rules of evidence and procedure, admissibility issues are pretty lax and undefined. Oftentimes it will depend on who your tribunal members are and what judicial tradition they come from. But almost always you are going to see a pretty expansive approach to the admissibility of evidence. As someone who litigates in the California Superior Courts, it's hard to imagine a tribunal in which the rules of evidence and admissibility are any more lax than they are here. Tom, I want to turn from headache number one for U.S. tech companies, taxation abroad. Headache number two is regulatory efforts. Talk to us about what tech companies should be thinking about in terms of potential actions growing out of regulatory efforts in another country. Sure. Tech companies do many things well, and there are three in particular that come to mind when I think about regulatory problems. One is they do things that no one has ever done before. And two, in doing so, they disrupt existing industries. And three, they tend to do so in a way that makes them somewhat high profile. They're sexy. Everybody likes to talk about tech companies. All this leads to regulatory issues. Uh, one, by doing things that are new, governments aren't sure how to regulate them. Uh, and so they make missteps in regulating them. You know, they pass laws like data localization laws that we've been seeing in various jurisdictions that have very significant implications for tech companies. Uh, and whether that was the intention or not, that is the result. Uh, and tech companies may have bilateral investment treaty protections that they can evoke against governments that pass those types of regulations. The second point about disrupting you know, in existing industries, the reality is we've already seen this happening and governments have a tendency to want to protect their existing industries against foreign tech companies. Uh, and so they will pass laws uh, that are discriminatory uh, and that can lead to an investment treaty uh, claim, and it has already in certain situations. And then last, the, the point about tech companies being high profile. Uh, Elliot uh, mentioned earlier the kind of burgeoning Cold War between various governments around the world. Uh, it seems that in, in many instances, tech companies have been 
used as a political football. Uh, and it certainly seems they'll continue to be used in that way. Uh, and as a result, they're subject to regulations that uh, they really probably should not be subject to. Uh, sometimes on the grounds of you know alleged national security concerns, otherwise, and sometimes other potential concerns. But all of these lead to potential investment treaty claims, often under the, the fair and equitable treatment clause that we were talking about earlier, or if they actually have a sufficient impact on the business of potential expropriation claim. Okay, Tom. So imagine that I'm the general counsel of a tech company, and I just listened to what you said, and I'm getting crushed in a couple countries with absurd regulatory requirements. And so I, I go to a meeting of the senior executives, and I say, I think we ought to bring a BIT arbitration, commence one. And the head of global public policy says, wait a minute, if you do that, we're totally screwed. That country will punish us on everything. Do any of these treaties have a non-retaliatory provision, or is that not a factor? In other words, can you be punished by the home state for invoking your rights under the treaty? Well, Boris, the, sh- the short answer is no. I mean, that would lead to a further claim for you know arbitrary treatment under the Fair and Equitable Treatment Clause of a, a treaty. And then the reality is that companies use investment treaties all the time as part of the, of course, claiming for damages as well as part of negotiating leverage. Uh, So if you have an issue uh, with a host state, there is, of course, a risk in bringing an investment treaty claim, but there's also a potential benefit in bringing an investment treaty claim in the sense that not only can you recover monetary damages, but you can strengthen your hand in negotiations with the host state. For any of you, have you, without identifying a client, obviously, have you had experience wherein company to government negotiations on regulations, the company has been able to leverage the polite threat of a treaty arbitration to improve the terms they can agree to? Far more frequently than we actually have to bring a claim, we can discuss the implications of a potential treaty claim with a government in order to make sure that the government doesn't do something that's going to violate the treaty, which is in everyone's interest. So yes, Boris, the specter of investment treaty claims operates as a very good break on government misbehavior. And just so our clients get a sense of the negotiating dynamic, I want to make sure it's not a situation where Annie is representing a client with a government and she makes the point that you just did. They don't close their binder and say, how dare you, we're walking out. That's viewed as a legit part of the negotiating process. Governments are, are quite familiar with investment treaty claims as the route. Even the United States has been subject to over 25 investment treaty claims. Uh, so this won't be a new concept for them. Uh, and governments usually have offices that are dedicated to negotiating investment treaty claims. Uh, and so they understand the process. Uh, and the reality is, you know, sometimes you're able to invoke the potential threat of an investment treaty claim to resolve the regulatory issue. Sometimes you have to bring the claim uh, and then it's resolved. But in any event, the reality is that this is not a new concept for states. They get it. They know it's a, a powerful tool that they have to confront and they usually take it quite seriously. So I want to turn to the third horseman of the techpocalypse. We've had taxes and regulation. The third one is cyber attacks. 
Annie, it can't be the case, can it, that investors can use bilateral investment treaties to seek redress if they're the victim of a cyber attack? Tell me whether that's possible. So that's a really interesting question. We appreciate that for tech companies, for many companies today, value is very often intertwined with data. And so cybersecurity breaches, cyber crimes, they can often result in very significant losses. And BITs might provide a pathway for investors to claim damages for those losses, where the states have allowed an unsafe investment environment prone to cyber attacks to develop. Uh, one might argue that states could even have created that unsafe environment through, as Tom mentioned earlier, the regulation of how data must be shared or stored. And the most natural fit for this kind of claim under a BIT would seem to be under the right to full protection and security, or FPS. So the FPS provision has traditionally been applied to protect the physical integrity of assets. So, for example, in the context of a local police force not doing enough or not doing anything at all to protect against vandalism of oil pipelines, say. But there are also cases where FPS has been extended beyond physical protection to the commercial and legal security of assets. And so in the future, we might well see tribunals interpreting this to mean that a state actually has an active obligation to provide an adequate level of protection against cybercrime, and that if it hasn't, and an investor has suffered losses from a cyber attack as a result, that investor is entitled to claim damages from the host state for that loss. It's not a claim that's been made yet, so we'll have to wait and see. So what you've just said is tectonic, and I want to make sure I heard you correctly. If a client of ours has been the victim of either a government-sponsored or a government-tolerated cyber attack that has done great damage to their business, they might have recourse to damages under a bilateral investment treaty? That might well be the case under this right to full protection and security, as I mentioned. Now, you might have issues in terms of proving where exactly the cyber attack came from and connecting the causation of loss suffered by the investor, but certainly in terms of the rights that are given to investors under these treaties, that claim might well be there. Final question, and this is a little inside baseball. I'm a GC and I've listened to this and I say, I want my team to look at this. Where within a legal department at a company, who typically would handle this? Would the GC call the head of global policy? Is this something that goes to someone in the litigation group? Some of our clients have an affirmative recovery unit. If you were the GC, whom would you ping after listening to this and say, I want you to follow up and see if this could be of value to us? Do you have any insight into that? Our clients tend to come to us through their heads of commercial litigation. Um, some of those clients who, who have a majority of their businesses outside the US will have part of the litigation function devoted to international disputes. So it's usually someone in the litigation team, but also you know, more and more we're seeing folks from the policy side of things 
uh, coming to us as well because you know, these types of claims involve uh, sensitive policy interests as well. Boris, I would I would just add that often when we're in the, the situation where we're helping a client structure their investments to ensure that they have investment treaty protections, uh, like Elliot said, we'll, we'll be talking to the, the head of litigation, but we'll also often be working hand in hand uh, with the individual who's responsible for taxation within the company, because the, usually those two exercises are done together. We, you know, we want to make sure that you have the investment treaty protections that you need and that you're getting the taxation treatment that you want. Those questions often get answered together. As we begin to close, I want to ask about history and culture in the tech industry. I go back to DOS 3.1. There are days when I feel as if I'm still using DOS 3.1. And in all my time in the Valley, I don't recall ever seeing a tech company bring a treaty arbitration. And I'm wondering, Elliot, why you think that is. Tech companies have in the past, Boris, used investment treaties, uh, brought BIT arbitrations. They haven't been the greatest users, but that's in part because historically the claims that were pursued under these treaties were your old school, send in the army, dispossess you of your oil investment type of claim. And so, you know, that didn't obviously affect the tech companies. But what we're now starting to see are these treaties used for the types of regulatory interference we were talking about earlier, which is definitely affecting the tech companies. So while they haven't been the greatest users of these in the past because they haven't needed to, uh, they, we predict, are going to be much greater users of these treaties in the future because they are at the forefront of regulatory interference. Okay, thank you all very much, clients, friends, Freshfield, Bruckhaus, Derringer, for listening in. If you go to the associated webpage, we'll have some additional resources for you there. But it's been a pleasure to, to have you listen to us, and we wish you well.